Will you join me please in Luke chapter 23 tonight? Luke 23. I'm changing the order of the messages I'm sharing with you uh, tonight and tomorrow night. And so if you're looking at your notes in the booklet, this, these are tomorrow night's, this is tomorrow night's page. Uh, Luke chapter 23 in your Bibles, please. Uh, this is Orange Shirt Day, so uh, how many of you got that memo? Some of you got that? Awesome, all right. And so you get points for that. And, um, and then if you, wore, if you wore at any time today an orange plaid shirt, would you raise your hand? Yes, I see that hand. Yes, I see that hand. All right, yes. You get double bonus points for that. So uh, way to go, team. Luke chapter 23. Jesus entered Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week, riding on a donkey, and he fulfilled prophecy in doing so. The crowd shouted, Hosanna to the king. He ate the last supper with his disciples, walked to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was arrested, and then tried, and then sentenced to die. And we will pick up the narration of the events of that day at Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 13. Luke 23, verse 13. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accused him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. They all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said to hunters of Jerusalem, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, Calvary, 
There they crucified him. I'm going to stop reading there for now. I would like to talk today about what we see at Calvary. When I say the word see, I mean with our mind's eye, but also looking beneath the surface of the events that happened to the significance of them. What do you see when you look at Calvary? Luke sums it up when he says there in verse 33, there they crucified him. I want to share with you five perspectives that we see at Calvary. The first one is this. You see that God has a plan. God has a plan. Luke said there they crucified him. There was the place called Calvary. The word Calvary means the place of the skull. And Calvary was the name of the hill near Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. It was a small mountain about 2,500 feet above sea level. I love the mountains. I've talked about the mountains and have lived near the mountains. And some of you have traveled to the mountains. The towering, sprawling mountain ranges all over the world just point to the the grandeur of our God, the Rockies, the Alps, the Andes, the Pyrenees, the Himalayas, and on and on they go. You know, our God, our great God created those mountains. Psalm 65 verse 6 says, He established the mountains by his strength. Imagine the strength required to form the mountains. God did that. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, they were brought forth by the hand of God. Or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The mountains point to the greatness of our God. And when God established the mountains and brought them forth, He formed, along with those great ranges, He formed a relatively small and insignificant mountainous region near the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It is the area that we know of as Palestine. And God had a plan that included one of those hills. God not only made the earth, He made mankind. He made the first man and the first woman, and he placed them in a spectacular garden, a pristine paradise. And he made the human species to share his infinite perfections and to display his glory. And that first man and first woman made a tragic choice. And by their disobedience, they brought the curse of God on the human race And so we are doomed to live and to die as sinners. That could have been the end of the story, right? But God's marvelous plan included and provided for this scenario. And while it seemed that Satan was winning the battle of Eden, his arsenal contains nothing that matches the infinite wisdom and everlasting love of God. And this plan of our great God unfolded over thousands of years as the movements of men and nations and the lives of shepherds and kings and the trivial affairs of life and the earth-shaking events of the world and the acts of submission as well as rebellion all tumbled and clicked in perfect arrangement and sequence. And as Paul says, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. 
God's plan to display his glory and reconcile his creatures to himself required his own son to take upon himself humanity. To walk this earth and to announce the terms of the kingdom of God and to gather people around him and to train a few good men who would perpetuate the work that he began. And he did that. Jesus did that, didn't he? Then the unthinkable happened. Those people he came to save, those people that he invested his life in, turned on him. And they fabricated charges. And they pressured the Roman occupying officials to arrest him and to try him. And in the ultimate act of human injustice, he was sentenced to die. And again, it seems like somehow Satan was winning the day. He was using human agents to thwart the plan of God, but to the contrary, Jesus' death was the plan of God. And the day that God cursed Adam and Eve, he promised the seed of the woman would deal a death blow to Satan. And when this Jesus was born, the angels announced that he would save his people from their sins. It was all part of the plan. And Jesus himself announced to his disciples, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all the things written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. He shall be delivered to the Gentiles. He shall be mocked, spitefully treated, spitted on. They shall scourge him and put him to death. And of course, the plan of God did not end there because Jesus went on to say, and the third day he shall rise again. And Peter proclaimed in Acts 2.23 that although men had taken him with wicked hands and slain him, he was, quote, delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan. God made Adam and Eve knowing that he would give his son to redeem them from the curse of sin. And he created a hill called Calvary knowing it would be the site where Jesus would suffer and die. It was there they crucified him. When we look at Calvary, we see that God had a plan. We also see, secondly, that people have personal responsibility. People have personal responsibility. It says in Luke 23, verse 33, there they crucified him. Who is they? Well, the obvious ones responsible for his death were the Roman soldiers. They arrested him. They scourged him. They compelled him to climb Calvary under the weight of the cross as far as he was able. They pinned his hands and feet to the beams with spikes. They posted the instrument of death with Jesus hanging from it in a hole in the ground. They're the ones who supervised that day-long process, and they're the ones who ran a spear into his side to ensure that he was dead. But what do we see at Calvary? When we look beyond the events that we observe in that day, there's a deeper significance. And Peter brought this out when he was preaching at Pentecost and he assigned a greater guilt to a different group of people. It was the religious leaders who instigated Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion. Peter was addressing when he said, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you slew and hanged on a tree. And then Peter also indicted the crowd who called for Jesus' death when he said in Acts chapter 3, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified 
His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life, not the end of the story again, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. So the responsibility was placed on those who called for the death of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't end there. That responsibility extends all the way through history to every member of the human race, including you and me here today. Our hands did not crucify Jesus, but our sins did. Your sins and mine are the reason that Jesus was crucified. The prophet Isaiah said, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. It's we who like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. How did Jesus respond to the ones with blood on their hands? Well, It says, he cried, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. At his death, he desired forgiveness. And by his death, he provided it, didn't he? There's an old gospel song with beautiful words. I scourged the back of Jesus with thorns. I crowned his head. I cursed him and I mocked him. I longed to see him dead. I laughed with scorn as I followed him up the path to Calvary. I nailed his hands upon a cross and his blood ran at my feet. And that chorus says, but still he loved me. Near death forgave me. By grace he saved me from all my sin. My heart is filled with pain as I behold the stain his blood made for me at Calvary. And the reality is that every man, every woman, every boy, every girl here tonight is responsible for your sins. You are guilty. Your sins and mine are why Jesus died on Calvary. He was dying for you. And just like he prayed for forgiveness for the people who were crucifying him on that day, he offers forgiveness to you and to me as well, the ones who are responsible for his death. And he promises to take away your guilt and your punishment for sins and give you a home in heaven forever because of what he accomplished while dying on the cross at Calvary. So when you look at Calvary, you see that God had a plan. You see that people have personal responsibility. And you also see that sin has a price. Sin has a price. Luke 23, 33 says, there they crucified him. Neither gory descriptions nor Hollywood dramatizations can anywhere near convey the complete experience or the significance of what's contained in this word crucified. It was the Roman method of executing criminals, but on that day it was so much more. Jesus' crucifixion put on display the price of, of sin. What do we see? We see the physical price of sin for sure. The unspeakable agony, the unimaginable torment, the awful death. We see 
that the wages of sin is in fact death. We see the emotional price of sin. The anguish that caused him to sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see the the emotional trauma, the humiliation as he hung naked before his own people and was mocked and rejected. We see the judicial price of sin. The supreme judge, not just some earthly judge, but the supreme judge of the universe pronounced his own son guilty and passed sentence and executed it fully so that the judicial price of sin could be paid. We see the spiritual price of sin. The pure, holy Son of God took sin upon Himself. And as Paul says, He became sin for us. We see the relational price of sin. The separation from His Father as He bore the sin of the world on Himself and cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see the eternal price of sin. Crucifixion left its marks. Even when Jesus was raised from the dead in a glorified body, he bore the scars of the nails in his hands and feet and the spear wound in his side. And because you and I are personally responsible for our sin, we are the ones who deserve to pay that price, aren't we? We deserve to pay the physical price, the emotional price, the judicial price, the spiritual price, the relational price, and the eternal price. But Jesus paid the price. And as he was dying, he cried, it is finished, paid in full. He satisfied the justice of God so that you and I can go free. Now, what would compel God to give his son? What would hold Jesus to the cross? When we look at Calvary, we also see that Jesus has great love. In the account of our lives, somewhere it should say, there they crucified him or her. There they crucified Dean Taylor, or fill your name in. We are the ones who should pay for our sins, aren't we? But it doesn't say that. It says, there they crucified him. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was the one who was crucified. And the supreme act of love is to die so that someone else can live, as Jesus himself said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus' love surpassed even that degree. Because we know from Paul's words in Romans chapter 5 that while we were without strength, he, he died for the ungodly. Not just his friends, but the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Maybe for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And later on in that passage in Romans chapter 5 verse 10, it says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So friends and righteous people and good people, we can process, we can grasp a little bit the concept of a person giving themselves in the ultimate sacrifice 
We can, we can understand that somewhat. But a sinner and an enemy makes no sense. So why would he do it? And there's only one answer. It's in the little word so in John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world in this way, to this depth, to this degree, to this extent, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but of everlasting life. The only explanation is His great love. So when we look at Calvary, we see the great love of God and of Jesus Christ. And there is no picture, and there is no poem, and there is no song, and there are not enough words in the human language in every language on earth if they could all be put together to capture and convey the love of God, is there? It just is not possible. It supersedes. It overflows. It expands beyond. And that's why Paul says, hey, pray. In Ephesians 3, pray that, that you might know to some degree the width and the length and the depth and the height of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We just cannot bring it in and down and within our human capacity. It is impossible. And that's what's on display at Calvary. That's what we see at Calvary. And if you ever question the love of God, if you ever wonder about the love of God, look at Calvary. Because there it is unmistakable. There it is absolutely clear and compelling and convincing. When you look at Calvary, you see that God had a plan. You see that people have responsibility. You see that sin has a price. You see that Jesus has great love. But knowing this and saying, okay, I, I see that is only the beginning. Because you must act on what you know. And as we look at Calvary, we also see that you have a choice. You have a choice. If you look at verse 33 again with me, where we stopped reading, about the middle of the verse, it says, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Jesus was on the cross in the center, and on each side of him, a condemned criminal was being executed. And these crime-hardened men faced their death sentences with bitter anger. And the other accounts describe for us that as they were energized by the hostility of the crowd toward Jesus, they turned their own mockery and hatred toward him. But something changed as the hours wore on. And Luke highlights this conversation that took place among the two criminals and Jesus as they hung there above the ground on their respective crosses. Look at it with me in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. In other words, he was saying, If you're who you claim to be, use that power. Use your supernatural abilities to get us off these crosses. But look at what the other one says in verse 40. The other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man 
has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So criminal number two was saying, hey, hold on. I mean, God's worthy of our respect. We should fear God. And we are guilty. Jesus is innocent. And then he turns to Jesus and speaks to Jesus and says, will you help me? I don't deserve it. And I can't do anything to merit your favor. But I'm asking for it because I know you can give it. And look at Jesus' answer in verse 43. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, Jesus said, I grant your request. You'll go to heaven. As this near-death conversation took place, notice the difference between these two men. The first criminal was proud. The second was humble. The first one doubted. The second one believed. The first one was flippant. The other was reverent toward God. The first one ignored his own guilt, but the second one admitted his guilt. The first was blind to who Jesus was, but the second one recognized who Jesus was. The first one was more concerned about his physical life. The second one was concerned about his eternal soul. And the first one, as far as we know, died in his sin and went to hell. But the second one received eternal life and went to heaven. And what we see here is that people have a choice just like those two individuals did. And just like there were two men there, there are likely two kinds of people here. There are a lot of people who know the facts about Calvary and you know the truth about Jesus and, and yet there may be some who are proud and unbelieving and more concerned about your physical temporal life than, than your eternal soul. And you're in danger of dying and going to hell. But you still have a choice, don't you? And you can be humble and you can believe and you can admit your guilt, and you can recognize Jesus for who He is, the Savior and the Son of God. And you can have concern about your soul, and you can receive eternal life and go to heaven. Believe in Jesus to save you. He can, and He will, just like He did for that criminal on the cross. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners who are plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And as a stanza of that hymn says, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain, the blood of Christ in his day, and there may I, though I'm as vile as he is, wash all my sins away. And that can be your testimony too. Will you reflect on what we see at Calvary? Do you see that God's grand plan to save people from sin includes you? Do you see that your sins are the reason Jesus died on the cross? Not because he was guilty of your sins, but because he was paying for your sins. 
Do you see the awful price of sin and that Jesus Christ paid it in full for you? And are you beginning to to fathom the degree to which God loves you? And Jesus Christ showed that love for you on the cross. And do you recognize that in the plan of God and by the great power of God that Jesus Christ not only died for you, but also is alive because the grave could not hold him and he rose in victorious power and lives today. And because he rose, he sealed the fact that he had paid the full price and he put on display the truth that he's the son of God and he now lives to offer to all eternal life and it secures for us that home in heaven through his resurrection from the dead. And will you choose to trust him as your savior and to live for him as your Lord? I shared with you the other night that I was eight years old. I think most of the children are gone out of here, but an eight-year-old boy, and some of you probably at a young age understood enough of what happened at Calvary to put your faith in Jesus, admit that you were a sinner and in need of a Savior, and believed in Jesus to save you. I hope what you're hearing tonight causes you to just say, Amen. (laughs) Praise God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did for me and that you brought me to that understanding and you saved me. And I praise you and I will praise you forever. I will sing, you are worthy forever and ever. I hope the gospel helps you and encourages you to do that. My father, when he was in his 50s, I remember he made an appointment with our pastor and he went to see our pastor. And what I found out later was that he was meeting with our pastor because he had questions and concerns about his own soul. And he was not sure about his salvation. He had made a decision as a young child, but throughout the course of his life, he just wrestled with doubts about that and He went to see our pastor, and our pastor counseled him from the scriptures and showed him how that could be a a sure thing that he was able to grasp and trust in, and, and he made sure of that that day. I'm so glad that when my father passed away in 1999, I could stand beside his casket and speak at the funeral service and say, my father is dead, but he's with the Lord, and I'm going to see him again. Because of that, because he had trusted Christ as a Savior, not because he was a good person or a good dad or deserved it in any way. Maybe you're in a situation like that. Maybe even later on in life, and there are those questions, those struggles, or maybe it just has never really happened. In fact, all of this might be new to you, and I don't know enough of you to know, but you may have come to family camp this week, and you're here for the the enjoyment and maybe some people that that you like being with and, and the messages are okay and all of a sudden you're realizing, you know, this, this Bible talk is just kind of foreign to me, but it sure is interesting and it's giving me some things to think about. And maybe you've come face to face with the fact that you need the Savior. It's you. And you, in your mind, can consciously choose to believe in Jesus as the Savior who died for your sins and trust your eternal soul to Him. You can do that. You can do that now. I work at Faith Baptist Bible College, and we have the privilege 
of spending hours and hours a day and weeks and weeks out of a year with mostly young people, college-age young people, some of whom are here, who have decided, you know something? I know Jesus died for my sins and he rose again. And I'm just so in awe of that and I am so overwhelmed by his love for me. And I am so concerned that others know this wonderful news that I'm going to give my life and spend my days sharing that good news. And I want to learn how to live a life and how to be the kind of person that can share that good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Yes, there are people who say, you know what, that's going to be my life. And whether they end up in some kind of vocational ministry, full-time ministry, pastor, missionary, teacher, whatever, or not, they're just saying, hey, I want to live my life for Jesus Christ. And maybe there's somebody here tonight and you're thinking that way. You're thinking, wow, look at Calvary and look at what Jesus did for me and look at all that he has provided for me and the grace he has shown to me. You know, the, the scripture that God has used to guide my life in ministry is from Colossians chapter 1, Paul's testimony where he says, whom, speaking of Jesus Christ, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man that we may present every man complete in Christ Jesus. That truth has guided me and shaped me and motivated me in my life of ministry. And maybe there's somebody here and you're thinking, well, maybe, maybe God wants me in ministry. And you would just open your heart to that. Just say, all right, Lord, that's the conclusion I came to after I graduated from high school. I just became aware that God was starting to press me toward a life of ministry. And I had the grace from God to say, okay, you show me the next step and I'll take that next step. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe you would just say, Lord, I want to serve you with my life. You show me the next step and I will take that next step. We all can just praise God and love him more and say, you know what? Whatever God's word guides me to do because of all he has done for me, I'm just going to live my life for him. Whatever way he is challenging me, whatever areas of life he is transforming in me, whatever ways I'm getting off that path and he is correcting me, I'll respond to that correction. I'll follow that instruction in righteousness. I'll do his will to the best of my ability and with his help all my days. And then I look forward to glorifying him forever and ever. Calvary becomes a motivation to live our lives for him. So what is that next step for you. Would you please join me in prayer? I'd like to ask us just to quietly bow before the Lord and reflect in your heart on what we've talked about. And I can't put words in your mouth or shape them in your heart, but I can suggest maybe some ways to respond to what you've heard. And maybe you are the one who needs to say, Jesus, I believe in you to save me from my sins and give me eternal life. Please, my friend, go ahead and speak from your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and say something like that. Jesus, I believe in you. You died for me. Save me from my sins. Give me eternal life, just like that thief on the cross. 
and he will. Maybe it's saying something like, Lord, you gave all for me. I want to live my life for you. Whatever that means, whatever that means, my life is yours. To obey your word, to deal with sin, maybe to take steps to restore a relationship, to serve in ministry with my life, maybe even vocational ministry. Lord, I want to live my life for you, whatever that means. And Lord Jesus, just thank you for what you've done and what you did for me on Calvary. We do praise you, Lord Jesus, and offer you our thanks, inadequate as it is, and yet it's the way we can glorify you. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. In Jesus' name, amen.